I have to put you on to Armoire, the convenient solution to effortless, fresh, and stylish dressing. With an Armoire membership, you can curate the perfect wardrobe with high-quality, unique brands tailored specifically to your taste. Simply take a five-minute style quiz, select items from your personalized closet, then your chosen styles arrive at your doorstep in as little as two days. When it's time for a wardrobe refresh, just swap out your current pieces for new-to-you styles. I go from professional to the carpool pickup line, so I need a diverse wardrobe. With Armoire, I always have something fresh and on-trend for any occasion, without the clutter. I recently edited my wardrobe to staple pieces only because Armoire allows me to add new pieces monthly and return them just in time for me to do it all over again. And by renting, rather than constantly buying new clothes, I'm contributing to sustainability. Armoire is currently helping me through my chic era with all the high fashion and edgy options that I am loving. And the empowering aspect of supporting a women-founded and women-led business is so cool. With their personalized styling suggestions and diverse designer offerings, Armoire has helped me define and refine my personal style, even as trends evolve and my body changes. Whether it's a date night, a professional event, a formal affair, or just a trip to the grocery store, Armoire ensures that I am always dressed to impress effortlessly. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderish. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderish to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Fame can be impactful in both positive and negative ways. Some people use their fame to implement positive change in the world. Others who have different values or personality disorders may exploit the limelight to cloak their true insidious nature. Some might say Lana Clarkson was born with stars in her eyes. She dreamt of the kind of fame that would honor her natural abilities. She also wore her heart on her sleeve. Her desire to become a big-time Hollywood actress was apparent to anyone she encountered. Lana's pursuit of success made her vulnerable to the most sinister of predators. Life is unpredictable, especially when you're chasing your dreams. A single night in February of 2003 would shatter Lana's world and all who cared for her. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I explore the case involving model and actress Lana Clarkson.
This case takes us to Los Angeles, California and the nearby suburb of Alhambra. In the early 2000s, LA was very much a playground for the rich and famous. Its nightlife scene was filled with youthful energy. These were the years of Paris Hilton, Nicole Richie, and Lindsay Lohan dominating tabloids with their party girl antics. A scandal involving two people in the entertainment industry was and still is irresistible to gossip journalists and certain corners of mainstream media. That's just one reason why Lana's case, in particular, exploded in international headlines. Alhambra, on the other hand, is a step away from the high-speed party life of Los Angeles. Just eight miles outside the city's downtown, Alhambra is a blend of historic buildings and family-oriented communities. Lana Clarkson grew up in an area similar to Alhambra but she thrived in LA's bustling streets, once tread upon by her idol, Marilyn Monroe. Lana Jean Clarkson was a true California girl from the moment she was born in April of 1962. The Long Beach native had blonde hair, blue eyes, and skin that was always tan. Lana was one of three children born to Donna and James Clarkson. Lana, her sister Fawn, and their brother Jesse were raised in the hills of Sonoma County. Their childhood home was in Cloverdale, located roughly 90 miles north of San Francisco. The region is known for its vineyards and plentiful opportunities for outdoor recreation. Growing up in Northern California, Lana enjoyed activities like hiking and horseback riding. By the time she was a student at Cloverdale High School, Lana was Hollywood beautiful. At six feet tall, she towered over most of her classmates and looked like she walked straight out of a movie screen. When Lana was a high school junior, tragedy struck the Clarkson family. Her father, James, was involved in a fatal mining accident. The loss forever changed Lana, making her aware of how life can change at the drop of a hat. Lana's widowed mother, Donna, decided a fresh start was the best decision for her children. The Clarksons moved back to their native Southern California, settling in the San Fernando Valley region of Los Angeles. This relocation opened up a lot of possibilities for Lana, who found herself in an ideal location to pursue her dream of acting and modeling. And she seemed to ease into a career effortlessly. While attending college at Pacific Union, Lana appeared in several commercials for big-name clients, including Playtex, Nike, Mattel, Kmart, and Mercedes-Benz. Her modeling work took her all over the world, from Japan to Mexico. It's undeniable that Lana's biggest break came in 1982. That year, she was cast as Mrs. Vargas in the iconic film Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Lana's entry into Hollywood had her acting alongside a pre-fame Sean Penn and Jennifer Jason Lee. By landing a role in what quickly became a cult classic, Lana thought she'd be propelled into stardom. To her disappointment, what followed was a series of bit parts. Lana appeared on the sidelines in the movie Scarface and guest starred on more than 50 popular TV shows 
like Three's Company, Who's the Boss, The Jeffersons, and Wings. Though Lana's modest level of fame didn't meet her expectations, regular work came in throughout the 1980s. Hollywood producer Roger Corman saw enough potential in Lana's acting to create multiple productions where she was the lead. According to Fox News, he called her the original Xena. Starting with 1985's Barbarian Queen, Lana starred as a sword-wielding femme fatale in a series of movies classified as sword and sorcery films. She continued to portray fierce women in movies like 1987's Amazon Women on the Moon and 1990's Barbarian Queen 2, The Empress Strikes Back. But beyond B-movies, Lana never really achieved fame as a leading lady. In the 1980s, Lana was given more media attention for her involvement in charitable work than her acting. Lana volunteered weekly with the organization Project Angel Food to deliver food to LA residents afflicted with HIV and AIDS. This was a particularly bold move at the time when the AIDS epidemic was rampant and anxiety was fueled by misinformation about disease transmission. Lana continued to be cast in minor roles from the late 1990s into the early 2000s. In 2001, she was cast as Jane Mansfield in the TV movie James Dean. It was her biggest gig in years. Sadly, her career soon screeched to a halt due to an unfortunate accident. During a 2001 charity event, Lana slipped and fell, shattering her wrists. The recovery was long and time-intensive. She was told she'd be out of commission for about a year. When 2002 arrived, Lana was approaching 40. Though she was at the prime of her life, in a youth-obsessed industry, she was seen as old and washed up. As expressed by the LA Times, 40 is the witching hour for Hollywood actresses. Much to her embarrassment, Lana asked friends to loan her money while she recovered from her injuries. Then, in mid-January of 2003, she began working as a hostess in the Foundation Room, a VIP members-only seating area at the House of Blues in Los Angeles. Located on West Hollywood's famed Sunset Strip, Lana saw this job as a good way to bring in a bit of income while continuing to network with some of the film industry's most influential people. It also freed up her days for auditions. Always the optimist, according to the LA Times, Lana told a friend about her new employment, I'm going to meet people. They will remember that I am here and it might get me another job. And she did meet people, just not the kind of people who'd take her career to places she'd hoped. Lana Clarkson may have never crossed paths with Phil Spector if she hadn't started working at the House of Blues. Unfortunately, one fateful night would lead to devastating consequences. For decades, Phil Spector had built a name for himself on an international level. When he was in his 20s, Spector became a multimillionaire and was considered a dominant figure in the music industry. He was responsible for writing and producing mega hits 
Like the crystals the do run run, the Righteous Brothers you've lost that love and feeling, and Ike and Tina Turner's River Deep Mountain High. Born in December of 1939 in the Bronx, New York, Harvey Phillips Specter came from humble beginnings. His mother Bertha worked as a seamstress, and his father Bernard was an iron worker. In 1947, Bernard succumbed to the pressure of his family's debt and died by suicide. Four years later, Bertha moved the family to Los Angeles for a fresh start. This change in location set her son Phil on a path that would catapult him to stardom. Phil Spector attended Fairfax High School, long known to be a source of rising music talent. Though Spector's peers described him as reserved and insecure, he came alive through music. As a teen, he had perfect pitch and mastered several instruments effortlessly. While performing in school talent shows, Spector caught the attention of other musically inclined classmates. He and a few friends formed a band they named the Teddy Bears. At 17 years old, they released a single called To Know Him Is To Love Him, named after an inscription on Bernard Spector's tombstone. The song spent three weeks on the Billboard Hot 100 chart in 1958 and was later covered by big name artists like Linda Ronstadt and Dolly Parton. It was an achievement few musicians can boast in their youth. After graduating from high school, Specter briefly enrolled at UCLA with the vague idea of working as an interpreter for the UN. He wouldn't make it through his first semester though. He dropped out to focus on music full time. And during this time, Specter moved back to New York where he encountered other young aspiring musicians. The 1960s ushered in a new era of music. Spector quickly learned that Broadway's Brill Building was at the heart of New York City's creative immersion. It was there that singers, songwriters, composers, producers, and record labels all came together. The result was groundbreaking, introducing the world to power artists like Neil Diamond and Carole King and later launching the careers of Sonny Bono and his future wife, Cher. Spector began working with major composers and found his niche in producing music. In the early days of his career, he developed his own signature style. Spector's unique recording technique was deemed the wall of sound by music journalists. He layered complex orchestrations with vocal harmonies to create unprecedented sonic depth. This new approach revolutionized rock music and led to over two dozen hit singles, which included work on John Lennon's solo projects. But Spector's success as a producer was not reflected in his personal life. In 1963, he married his first wife, Annette Marar. She was the lead singer of an all-female pop trio that Spectre formed and produced, known as the Spectre's Three. The ill-fated marriage only lasted three years, with Spectre cheating on Annette with the woman who would become wife number two. Just like his ex-wife, Spectre met Ronnie Bennett through managing and producing her band, the Ronettes. 
When Ronnie first met the producer, she was 17 and he was 24. In combination with their age gap, Spectre's influence over Ronnie's career gave him power that could easily be abused. Fall is the prime season for planting. Many plants thrive when planted this time of year, but it's crucial to have the right starting point. That's why I love fastgrowingtrees.com. Fast-growing trees experts have you covered with thousands of plants to choose from, all tailored to suit your climate, location, and preferences. No need to go on a wild nursery chase or visit those giant gardening centers. Fast-growing trees makes it super convenient. Just hop online, place your order, and boom, plants are at your doorstep in one to two days. Whether you're aiming for added privacy, extra shade, or more nature in your yard, Fast Growing Trees has a team of in-house experts who are ready to lend a hand. Plus, they've got in-house experts ready to share growing and care advice 24-7. I have the opposite of a green thumb, so Fast Growing Trees is a game changer for me. They take the anxiety off my shoulders and help me make the best decisions for my yard goals. Even if you've never had a green thumb, like me, they'll make you feel like you do, just like over 1 million happy fast-growing trees customers across the country. Plus, with their 30-day alive and thrive guarantee, you can trust everything will be healthy for years to come. Listeners of our show get 15% off your entire order when you go to fastgrowingtrees.com murderish, but only through October 15th. That's 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash murderish. Fastgrowingtrees.com slash murderish. Breaking a bad habit can be disheartening after numerous failed attempts. We set out to break a bad habit and day one is filled with hope, but by day five, we're back to our old ways. Trust me, I've been there. It becomes a never-ending loop of feeling defeated. But maybe you're not the problem. Maybe it's just the way you're looking at it. Fume looks at things differently. Not everything in a bad habit is wrong. So instead of a drastic, uncomfortable change, why not just remove the bad from your habit? Fume is an innovative, award-nominated device that does just that. Instead of electronics, Fume is completely natural. Instead of vapor, Fume uses flavored air. And instead of harmful chemicals, Fume uses all natural delicious flavors. You get it, instead of bad, Fume is good. It's a habit you're free to enjoy and one that makes replacing your bad habit easy. Your Fume device features a customizable airflow dial and incorporates movable components and magnets, making it an ideal fidget tool. This not only provides a soothing way to combat stress and anxiety, but it also helps break habits. My friend wasn't quite sure what to expect, but she was pleasantly surprised on several fronts. The taste was far more flavorful than she imagined. The device was extremely balanced and well-weighted, which she found enjoyable to fidget with. And she absolutely loved the aesthetic of the beautiful real wood design of her fume. 
Stopping is something we all put off because it's hard, but switching to Fume is easy, enjoyable, and even fun. Fume has served over 100,000 customers and has thousands of success stories, and there's no reason that can't be you. Join Fume in accelerating humanity's breakup from destructive habits by picking up the journey pack today. Head to tryfume.com and use code MURDERISH to save 10% off when you get the journey pack today. That's tryfum.com and use code MURDERISH to save an additional 10% off your order today. Once his first divorce was finalized in 1968, Specter married Ronnie. Soon after, they adopted a son. For Christmas that year, Specter surprised his new wife by adopting twin boys. The children would later accuse Specter of keeping them captive. His wife, Ronnie, had alarming allegations of her own. According to Ronnie's 1990 memoir, Be My Baby, her marriage to Phil Specter was an absolute nightmare. He controlled all aspects of Ronnie's life, and their relationship was fraught with psychological abuse at every turn. In her memoir, Ronnie alleged that Specter kept her prisoner in their mansion by surrounding the property with barbed wire and guard dogs. Even more unsettling, she accused Specter of keeping a gold-plated coffin in their basement, which he threatened was waiting for her if she ever tried to leave him. In 1972, Ronnie gathered the strength she needed to leave her abuser. According to her memoir, with the help of her mother, Ronnie fled her home barefoot and headed straight to the office of a divorce attorney. In her memoir, Ronnie said of her escape, I knew that if I didn't leave at that time, I was going to die there. In a 1974 divorce settlement, Ronnie surrendered custody of their children and forfeited all future record earnings. It was a significant personal and financial blow that Ronnie believed was necessary in order to completely free herself of Phil Spector. As quoted by the LA Times, Ronnie would later testify that she only signed the settlement out of fear, recalling, he told me, I'll kill you and I'll have a hitman kill you. The same year Spectre's second divorce was finalized, he came very close to death when he was involved in a near-fatal car crash in Hollywood. According to Rolling Stone, the collision led to Spectre being thrown through the car's windshield. He was nearly declared dead at the scene. After hours of surgery that involved 700 stitches in his face and more than 400 in the back of his head, Spectre somehow survived. For a while after, his career was full of near misses. Along with the bad publicity of his failed marriages, Spectre had gained a reputation for being extremely difficult to work with. Rumors spread about Spectre threatening musicians with firearms when they doubted him. No one wanted to share a studio with a man who could go off at any moment no matter how talented he was. By the late 1970s, Spectre had taken a step back from the music business. His reputation preceded him and not in a good way. He cherry-picked special projects 
with acts like Leonard Cohen and the Ramones, but reports of his temperamental behavior continued. Spector blamed his gradual exclusion from music collaborations on the fickleness of the industry. He became reclusive and faded into relative obscurity inside his hilltop mansion at the edge of L.A. Spector referred to his sprawling Alhambra property as Pyrenees Castle. This was because the mansion's architect had been inspired by the castles of France, home to half of the Pyrenees Mountains. Spectre's property even had guard turrets. As reported by the LA Times, inside the 12,000 square foot mansion were 10 bedrooms, seven bathrooms, three half baths, an office, and a large wine cellar. It was an enormous home for one man to inhabit, yet that's where he chose to spend his days in complete seclusion, an inhabitable symbol of his vast wealth. According to Rolling Stone, by the time Spectre was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1989, he'd been retired from the music business for nearly a decade. Regardless, he had achieved a level of success in those early years that few people achieve in their entire career. The kind of success that Lana Clarkson would sadly never know. On February 2nd of 2003, Phil Spector happened to come into the House of Blues when Lana was working. Initially, she stopped Spector from entering the VIP room. Lana didn't know who the pompous older man was, and she didn't think he belonged in the exclusive space that she was charged with monitoring. Spector grew visibly enraged by Lana's snub and demanded to speak with her manager. When Lana was informed that the rude gentleman was one of the most acclaimed music producers of her time. She reluctantly apologized. Spectre's demeanor softened. The breathtaking woman before him captured his interest and he struck up a flirtatious conversation. Lana felt no attraction toward him, but she could tell that this man was connected. She considered the possibility that being pleasant toward him could be extremely advantageous to her career. Lana decided she'd play the game so often required in Hollywood circles. When Lana left the nightclub later, clinging to Spectre's arm, she had no idea what terrible trouble she'd soon be in. Like a fly landing on a Venus flytrap, the hopeful actress had unwittingly ensnared herself in a fatal embrace. In the early morning hours of February 3rd, 911 operators in LA County received a panicked phone call from a man named Adriano De Souza. De Souza identified himself as Phil Spector's chauffeur. According to the Los Angeles Daily News, the Brazil native told the dispatcher, I think my boss killed somebody. When prompted for more details, De Souza said there was a woman on the floor and Spectre had emerged from the house, clutching a gun. It was just after 5 a.m. when first responders arrived at Spectre's Alhambra mansion. When Spectre answered the door, officers immediately spotted the lifeless woman in the foyer. Lana was seated in a chair with her legs extended in front of her. 
Her head drooped to the side as a large amount of blood pooled from her face to her chest. Right away, the officers thought the scene was staged. A leopard print purse hung on the woman's shoulder backwards, as though it had been placed there. They looked to Spectre for answers. As quoted by the Santa Cruz Sentinel, Alhambra police officer Beatrice Rodriguez would later testify that Spectre said, I didn't mean to shoot her, it was an accident. But Phil Spectre's account did not add up, especially when officers asked his driver for a statement. According to Fox News, DeSouza said he'd heard popping sounds coming from the house around 5 a.m. A short time later, Spectre appeared at the back door with a revolver held to his side. Spectre then told his driver, I think I killed somebody. Spectre continued to insist that it was all an accident. Previous experience suggested otherwise. This wasn't the first time local authorities had been notified that Phil Spectre was threatening a woman with a firearm during a conflict. Dating back to 1993, Spectre had a history of resorting to gun violence during arguments. As reported by the LA Times, the first reported incident involved a female guest at his home who he had threatened with a shotgun. In 1995, Spectre prevented a female photographer from leaving his hotel room by pointing a pistol at her. A third incident occurred four years later when he pressed a handgun to a woman's cheek. This was in response to her asking him to leave her party. Spectre's explosive anger reared its ugly head anytime he didn't get his way. Unfortunately, none of the women subjected to his wrath had filed charges, but police reports from years ago helped to establish a pattern. As the first rays of sunlight entered the late winter sky, Alhambra officers surveyed the crime scene and contemplated Spectre's past transgressions. It wasn't a stretch to think that Phil Spectre had finally snapped. Officer Michael Page knew that he had probable cause to make an arrest right then and there. Two shots from the officer's stun gun failed to drop Phil Spectre. With the assistance of several officers, he pinned Spectre down to cuff him. While struggling against them, Spectre changed his tune, saying they were making a mistake and Lana had committed suicide. Someone as wealthy as Spectre does not stay behind bars for long. After a few hours in county jail, he was released on $1 million bail. As someone who spent most of his life in the public eye, Phil Spector was hell-bent on optics. Soon after bailing out, he emailed several friends to express that Lana Clarkson's death was an accidental suicide. That information quickly leaked to the press. Lana's family did not believe it for a second. Her sister Fawn told ABC News, I've known my sister my whole life and there is no way she committed suicide. That's ridiculous. When asked if Lana had seemed emotionally distraught before her death, 
Fawn told ABC she was fine. There is no way she was feeling down or depressed. I saw her the night before her last shift. A private funeral service was held for Lana on February 19th of 2003. Her remains were cremated and interred at Hollywood Forever Cemetery, a popular burial site for celebrity icons through the ages. Friends of the late actress attended a public memorial service just a few days later. It was an unspeakable tragedy that the 40-year-old actress had her life taken by someone she had known for a matter of hours. Lana's loved ones held on to the hope that her killer would be brought to justice. Only then could she rest in peace. Alhambra detectives were in a bind. It became apparent early in their investigation that Spectre and Lana Clarkson had been alone inside his mansion when she was killed. There were no other witnesses, so no one could say for sure what had led to Lana's death. Spectre's driver, Adriano de Souza, could help fill in the gaps though. He provided an account of what happened before and after the gun was fired, offering insight into the night's events. De Souza's testimony allowed investigators to create a timeline. As reported by the LA Times, De Souza admitted he violated his student visa by working as Spectre's backup driver. De Souza was a veteran of the Brazilian army and had been employed as a parking valet when Spectre offered him higher pay to be his personal limo driver. On the night of February 2nd at about 7 p.m., De Souza had driven Spectre to pick up a dinner date with a female acquaintance named Rami Davis. While dining with her at the grill on the alley, Spectre asked waitress Kathy Sullivan to go out with him later that night. De Souza drove Davis home later and picked up Sullivan at 11 p.m. Spectre and Sullivan bar hopped for a few hours around Hollywood and ended up at the House of Blues. Just before 2 a.m., Sullivan asked to be driven home while a drunk Spectre stayed at the nightclub. Presumably, that's when Spectre began chatting with Lana Clarkson. Spectre was used to getting whatever he wanted whenever he wanted. He made multiple advances and asked Lana to come home with him for some drinks. Though she rebuffed his invitation again and again, Lana eventually relented. She agreed to one drink. De Souza knew this because Lana repeated it once she got into the car she would come over for just one drink. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Silk pillowcases are a must-have if you're a skincare girly like me. My Blissy pillowcase retains my skincare products instead of having them wasted on a cotton pillowcase. 
because Blissey pillowcases are crafted from 100% mulberry silk. It also helps retain my natural skin moisture because silk does not absorb moisture. Once you nab a Blissey pillowcase, you can say goodbye to morning wrinkles, flakiness, and redness, and say hello to waking up with refreshed skin, not to mention healthier hair. Blissey pillowcases reduce frizz, minimize tangles, and prevent hair breakage. Talk about beauty rest. Blissey silk pillowcases offer temperature-regulating properties and have natural insulating features. If you sleep hot, Blissey is perfect for you because it maintains a cool and comfy temperature throughout the night, leading to less wake-ups to flip the pillow for a cooler side. Many claim that satin can replace silk, but that's not true. Satin is made from synthetic fibers like polyester, while silk is a luxurious, natural fiber. Silk is also breathable, moisture-wicking, and gentle, unlike satin. My Blissey pillowcase is naturally hypoallergenic, machine washable, and it has a zipper to keep my pillow in place. Blissey silk pillowcases are the best silk pillowcases on the market. They have a ton of different prints and colors, and they make great gifts because there's an option for literally anyone. Men love them too. Sleep better with Blissey's award-winning 100% mulberry silk pillowcases. They have over 1.5 million raving fans, and you could be the next. Try now risk-free for 60 nights at blissey.com murderish and get an additional 30% off. That's B-L-I-S-S-Y dot com slash murderish and use code murderish to get an additional 30% off. Sleep cooler this summer with Blissey. Most entrepreneurs dream of turning their small business into a thriving big business. But the question you have to consider is, are you ready for your business to blow up? Do you have the right systems in place to track inventory, online sales, and in-person sales? When that TikTok goes viral and those customers are rushing to your shop, be ready with Shopify. Think of Shopify POS as your go-to control center for running your retail shop. It's got everything covered from handling payments to keeping your inventory in check. With Shopify, you're partnering with a retail powerhouse that seamlessly ties together your brick and mortar and online sales. You can easily keep tabs on sales from one spot and always know exactly what's in stock. Plus, Shopify helps you connect with customers, whether they're standing in line at your store or scrolling through their social media feeds. They've got amazing tools for marketing on platforms like TikTok and Instagram, making it a breeze to attract more shoppers, both offline and online. You can accept payments using your smartphone, turn your tablet into a point of sale setup, or opt for Shopify's battle-tested POS Go Mobile device. And Shopify's got award-winning support to help you succeed at every turn. When it comes to doing retail, do it the right way with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash murderish, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash murderish to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash murderish. 
It was 3.30 in the morning when Spectre and Lana arrived back at the mansion. Spectre was so intoxicated, Lana had to help him stumble into the house. DeSouza drove around back to wait in his limo, anticipating that Lana would need a ride home at some point before sunrise. Ten minutes passed before Spectre unexpectedly came back to the car to grab a brown leather briefcase. The next time DeSouza saw his boss was nearly two hours later when Spectre stepped outside alone and dazed. The old man's hand clutched a gun smeared with blood. Ten firearms in total were retrieved from Spectre's mansion during the investigation. The gun fired on the night in question was a 38 caliber Colt Cobra revolver. A coroner determined that Lana Clarkson's cause of death was a single gunshot wound to the mouth. She was killed instantly. Suspiciously, the gun was found under Lana's left ankle, even though she was right-handed. According to the LA Times, forensic experts later testified that if the victim had shot herself, the gun would have dropped beneath her dominant hand. This finding contributed to the theory of a staged crime scene. Further blurring the line between suicide and homicide, gunshot residue was found on both of the victim's hands. That detail could not be explained if Spectre had shot her. Detectives determined the firearm wasn't registered to Spectre, and no detectable fingerprints could be pulled for testing. The smeared blood implied that the gun had been wiped clean, countering Spectre's claims that this was a suicide. Smeared blood matching Lana's DNA was also found on the wood railing of the stairway and the back door handle, according to the LA Times. And there was more physical evidence pointing to foul play. A white cloth soaked with Lana's blood was found in the bathroom, and blood droplets were detected on a white jacket that Spectre wore that night. His trouser pocket was caked with blood, suggesting he stashed the tainted revolver there. Other evidence only raised more questions about what had gone on. Spectre's leather briefcase contained a three-pack of Viagra, with two tablets missing. Bottles of half-finished liquor were scattered around the mansion's living room and bathroom. Candles were left burning on the fireplace mantle. All of these details left investigators stumped. During a night of celebration, how did a woman end up dead? They might not have had all the answers, but a year into the investigation, they had enough to indict Spectre. Court proceedings began in late 2005. From beginning to end, Spectre treated the Los Angeles courtroom like his own personal circus. As reported by Fox News, bizarrely, Spectre appeared at pretrial hearings in theatrical outfits, usually featuring high-heeled boots, frock coats, and wildly styled wigs. At one hearing, Spectre showed up in a chauffeur-driven Hummer. DeSouza was not the driver. The public spectacle drew to a close as the murder trial officially began. Spectre showed up in tailored suits, accompanied by the best defense team money could buy. Bruce Cutler had previously defended 
New York gangster John Gotti, while his co-defender, Linda Kenny Baden, would later represent Casey Anthony. Six months before the trial, Spector married his third wife, 26-year-old actress and singer Rochelle Short. She dutifully joined Spector at every court appearance, though it's unclear if she believed in his innocence. The greatly anticipated trial began on April 26th of 2007 in Los Angeles Superior Court. Over the course of five months, a jury of nine men and three women were tasked with deciding Spectre's fate. As if the celebrity case did not receive enough press coverage, Judge Larry Paul Fiddler also allowed television cameras inside the courtroom. It was the first criminal trial broadcast live in Los Angeles since O.J. Simpson's infamous 1995 murder trial. Prosecutors opened with graphic crime scene photos. As quoted by The Californian, Assistant DA Alan Jackson told the jury, the evidence is going to paint a picture of a man who on February 3rd of 2003 put a loaded pistol in Lana Clarkson's mouth and shot her to death. Spectre's defense team were intent on painting him as a true romantic of a bygone era, according to the Californian. At every turn, they strive to make the victim look bad. According to the LA Times, in opening statements, defense attorney Bruce Cutler said, the evidence will show that back on February 3rd of 03, before they even had a cause of death, let alone a manner of death, they had murder on their mind. Both sides called upon expert testimony before a standing room only courtroom. Forensic analysts offered their opinion on what the amount of blood on Spectre's white jacket meant. One witness for the defense said, if he had shot the victim at close range, the jacket would have been saturated in blood. As reported by the Californian, since only 18 droplets of the victim's blood was found on the jacket, suicide could not be ruled out. Spectre's defense tried to discredit key witnesses for the prosecution. Women who Spectre had threatened with guns in the past courageously came forward, only to be cast as seekers of money and fame by the defense. Similarly, the defense made Lana Clarkson sound like a burnt-out actress devastated by a failed career. Spectre's attorneys even called into question DeSouza's 911 call, saying the driver, as a fluent speaker of Portuguese, may have misheard his former boss's admission of guilt due to a language barrier, ABC News reported. In retrospect, the corruption of Spectre's defense has come to light. In 2023, World-renowned forensic scientist Dr. Henry Lee appeared in the news as part of an expose on false testimony. In 1985, teenagers Sean Henning and Ralph Ricky Birch were sentenced to 30 years in prison for a murder they did not commit. In 2023, a federal judge found Dr. Henry Lee liable for falsifying evidence in Henning and Birch's 1985 murder trial. After being exonerated, the two men filed a wrongful conviction lawsuit against Dr. Henry Lee, 
for falsifying testimony that sent them to prison. In Lana Clarkson's case, years before Dr. Lee was found liable for falsifying evidence, prosecutors alleged that Dr. Lee removed and concealed a piece of the victim's acrylic fingernail. According to the LA Times, prosecutors believed it was broken or blown off when Lana Clarkson blocked her face from Spectre's gun. But defense experts countered that it was impossible for a fake fingernail to be taken from the crime scene, saying it would have melted in the gun blast. In the end, Spectre's defense team were successful in creating uncertainty in jurors' minds. Meanwhile, Deputy DA Alan Jackson accused Phil Spector of using his wealth to buy scientific opinions and diminish any remorse for the victim. Quoted in the Santa Maria Times, DA Jackson closed by saying, Lana Clarkson, through the evidence in this case, has suffered and endured something that no human being should have to endure. She's been murdered twice. She was murdered once on February 3rd of 2003 by Philip Spector when he put a gun in her mouth and that gun went off. And her character has been assassinated over the last four months through the presentation of the defense evidence, attempting to paint her in a way that simply isn't true. The trial came to an anticlimactic end with a hung jury of 10 to 2 for conviction on first-degree murder. The jury found it impossible to reach a unanimous decision, so the judge was forced to declare a mistrial. A year later, on October 20th of 2008, a retrial began. This time, Judge Fidler did not allow it to be televised. California prosecutors also went for a second-degree murder conviction, which they believed was a stronger case. At the retrial, prosecutors focused more on Spector's character. The women he psychologically tormented with guns took the stand yet again. Their testimony was crucial, as they established Spectre as a charming manipulator whose rage was worsened by alcohol. Even if Lana Clarkson's death had been an accident, years of waving guns in people's faces was bound to end in senseless tragedy. Commenters on the case pointed out how much Spectre's fame factored into both trials. According to The Guardian, Jean Rosenbluff, a law professor at the University of Southern California said, if this were not Phil Spector, with a lot of money to spend, a trial like this would have never gone on for so long. Cases don't usually go to trial when there is this much evidence against the defendant. The second jury found Phil Spector guilty of second-degree murder in 2009. An additional charge tacked four years onto his sentence, for using a firearm in the commission of a crime. Finally, Spectre was forced to face consequences for his actions. He was sentenced to 19 years to life in prison. However, he would only serve 12 years in the California correctional system. In 2021, Spectre passed away at the age of 81 due to complications related to COVID-19. 
In 2019, Rochelle Short officially became Spectre's third ex-wife. As part of the divorce settlement, she also became a millionaire by selling off Phil Spector's mansion for $5.5 million. There have been multiple documentaries on this case. In 2013, HBO produced a fictionalized film about Spector's first trial, starring Al Pacino and Helen Mirren. Spector's former attorney, Linda Kenny Baden, served as a consultant on the production in a controversial move by the network. In November of 2022, Showtime released a four-part docu-series on the case. The docu-series has received critical acclaim for focusing more on the victim than the musically influential perpetrator. For Lana's mother, Donna Clarkson, the pain of her loss remains no matter how much time passes. She told the LA Times in 2022, I miss her every day. And I think about her and it makes me smile, but it makes me cry at the same time. She's still there. She's all around. I know that she is not with me, but I try not to live in that reality if I can. It's hard to believe how cruel fate can be, how a single night can take everything away. Maybe Lana's loved ones can find comfort in the courage she inspired in the women who rose to her defense who made their voices drown out the lies of a monster. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Murderish. I'm really excited to announce that I recently launched a brand new podcast called Lipstick and Lies, along with my co-host, Melissa Moore. On Lipstick and Lies, Melissa and I take turns walking each other and the listeners through mostly female-centric cases involving lady liars and killers. And we offer our own unique perspective as two crime survivors. Lipstick and Lies is available now in all podcast apps. If you enjoy Murderish, do me the biggest favor by leaving a positive rating and review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. Murderish listeners, make sure you're following me on Instagram and TikTok at Jamie on Air. That's J-A-M-I on air on Instagram and TikTok, especially because I recently started a true crime TV club called the Serial Streamers. Serial Streamers is just like a book club, only it's a club for people who binge true crime documentaries. If you wanna join the Serial Streamers TV club, all you have to do is follow me on Instagram at Jamie on air and then watch for videos about the latest TV series that we're watching together so you can join us in the comments and share your thoughts on each series. That's at Jamie on Air on Instagram. I also record videos of every Serial Streamers episode on YouTube, so make sure to subscribe on YouTube at Jamie on Air. If you want ad-free episodes of Murderish, you can get them by signing up for Murderish Behind the Mic on Patreon or at Murderish.com and then start enjoying ad-free episodes right away. Thanks so much to Marissa H., Sam S., and Tessa for becoming the latest Murderish Behind the Mic patrons. I appreciate all of your support so much. This episode was researched and written by Allison Schwartz. Visit Murderish.com for a list of sources used for this episode. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish.
All right, if you're listening right now, I need your help with a missing persons case. Armando Diaz, a Hispanic male with ties to Chicago, Illinois and Guadalajara, Mexico, has been missing since February 20th of 2021. Diaz is described as five foot seven and 175 pounds with brown eyes and cropped black hair. He goes by several aliases, including Pajaro, Pajarito, and Mondo, and he's in his late 30s. Armando Diaz has scars on the bridge of his nose and his left knee. It is feared that Diaz was kidnapped for ransom when he went missing in Guadalajara. The Chicago FBI is requesting the public's assistance in locating Diaz. Any information regarding Armando Diaz's whereabouts should be reported to the FBI's Chicago field office at 312-421-6700. There's also a link to the FBI field office's website in the episode notes. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.